And welcome into Heavy Hitters, everybody here on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. I'm Jack Heim. Unfortunately, no Mitchell Smedley today, um, but he'll be back for Friday's show. Don't you worry about that. A um, lot to get to here today. Super Bowl talk. MLB season right around the corner. It is officially baseball season and college basketball in full swing as well as we are just about a month away from the final bracket being revealed to propel us here in a March Madness. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We appreciate it. Uh, cannot wait to talk for these next two hours. So much to get to. Uh, and let's start it off with a main event from the weekend, that being Super Bowl 58 between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. What a thriller of a game it was, first off. I mean, that was incredible. What a Super Bowl between two juggernaut teams. So much talent on both sides of the field for, for San Francisco. All the skill players. Defensively, what a show that they put on in the first half. And really throughout the whole game for the most part. And the same story goes for Kansas City. A fantastic game that was really, you know, impressive in a variety of different ways in the first half it was all defense you saw with San Francisco really getting that pressure on Mahomes getting him out of his rhythm and out of his comfort zone and that trickled over early into the second half with that third quarter INT that Mahomes threw uh you know airmailing his intended target and it was picked off by Brown but man oh man the Niners just could not get it done again I said it on the Friday show the Chiefs are inevitable. They are. They just are. And it wasn't a blowout by any means. That's not what I'm saying by inevitable. But the Chiefs, man, it's we, we're rolling over from one dynasty to another. Just when the, when the Patriots book closed, the Chiefs has, has opened up three Super Bowls in five years. Patrick Mahomes becomes just the fifth quarterback ever to win three Super Bowls unbelievable only the third quarterback ever to to win three Super Bowls and two MVPs I mean what this guy has done and at only age 28 Patrick Mahomes is cementing himself as one of the game's greats um by no means am I ready to say that he's better than Tom Brady I think the people who are saying that uh are, are simply foolish in it in the present now if Mahomes does a little bit more maybe wins you know two three more championships then he'll certainly have have an argument right up alongside Brady because Brady is a seven-time Super Bowl champ, six with New England, one with Tampa Bay. Uh, but but you know Mahomes has certainly got off to a great start. Three Super Bowl titles. They're going back to back. Are the Chiefs unbelievable? This team so well-rounded. So much to get to. We're going to take a deep dive. I mentioned how this game was was great all around on a broad facet. But but let's take a deep dive into what led to the result we got in Super Bowl 58, which was a Kansas City Chiefs win 25-22 in overtime, fittingly on the last play of overtime. That's how tight and how good of a game this truly was. Uh, but the Chiefs are the first team to go back-to-back, like I mentioned, since the New England Patriots did in 2003 and 2004. This group, I will gush about the Chiefs' defense coming up, but man, oh man, with, with the lack of quality skill players you know at the receiver outside of Travis Kelsey it is unbelievable that this team went on the road they did I mean taking down the the two seed in the AFC in the divisional round the one seed in the conference championship game and then taking down the one seed in the NFC in the Super Bowl I mean 
un- unreal that the Chiefs would not say against all odds, but they were not favored to win the Super Bowl at the start of the playoffs. But they got it done. They got it done again. Uh, and, and the coaching staff, I'll give them their flowers coming up too. But Kansas City, they, they do it again. Unbelievable. Um, one thing that, that confused me, I'm going to talk about the 49ers coaching staff first. And Kyle Shanahan deserves a lot of airtime and he'll get it. Coming out of this game, several 49ers players said they were unaware of the different overtime rules for the playoffs. Um, Kyle Juszczyk directly said, look, I didn't know it was different. I thought we took the ball first, go down, score a touchdown, win the game. I I mean, how as a coach can you not prepare your team to go into that type of situation and and understand the rules? I mean, throughout game week, you have to prepare your team for all possible situations. And going to overtime is not the most unlikely thing to happen. Uh, It is... Absolutely absurd that Kyle Shanahan did not have the 49ers prepared to play overtime and not fully grasp the rules, uh, the the new rules. Granted, it is the first playoff game with those new postseason rules, but still, you have to have your guys prepared for all situations. You know, this is the Super Bowl. This is the biggest game of the season. It all comes down to this. Whether you win a championship or not is on the line here. And to not have some players be aware of of what's happening on the field is crazy to me. Absolutely insane that some of the 49ers did not grasp the new overtime rules and did not understand what was going to happen in that extra period with with, with the specific new rule changes being that each team gets to possess it once. It's just like a brand new game. You know, if the overtime period ends, it's just another quarter and the Chiefs would have started inside the 10 if they let the time run out in the first overtime period. I mean... The coaches needed to prepare San Francisco better for that situation. And speaking of the overtime, the absolute boneheaded decision from Kyle Shanahan to take the ball first. Why would you take the football first there? Some people were saying, oh, well, it makes sense if it gets to a third possession. You know, then they have the chance to, you know, end the game with a score. You're thinking so far ahead that what if you get a stop and score and win the game? I mean, the defenses were gassed. That's true. But that's not just for San Francisco. That's for Kansas City, too. Both of those defenses were out on the field for 70-plus plays throughout that entire game. They were exhausted. A lot of that happening from, from the first half and trickling into the third quarter with, with how much both those defenses were on the field. And that's why you saw the game open up the way it did down the stretch in the fourth quarter and, and into overtime. But, I mean... To take the football first there, another highly questionable coaching decision from Kyle Shanahan in a big-time moment. Not the first time that this has happened to him. And the coaching disparity showed itself. Kyle Shanahan, by no means, means is he a bad football coach. He knows what he's doing. He's made a couple of Super Bowls. The guy is, is one of the better coaches in the game. There, there's no way you can say otherwise. But in the biggest moments, Kyle Shanahan seems to come up short quite consistently. And it is, I think, large in part due to the decisions that he's making on that sideline. The, this team is so uber-talented, is San Francisco. One of the better rosters put together that, that we've seen. And to not be able to win a Super Bowl with this group is highly disappointing I'll talk about the future of the 49ers 
later on in this opening hour. But man, oh man, Kyle Shanahan's decision in overtime was the reason I think San Francisco lost the Super Bowl. Not not the Ray Ray McLeod muffed punt that kicked off of an up man. Not the McCaffrey fumble early. Both these teams made miscues, but that decision by San Francisco to take the football first and give Mahomes an extra down. I mean, you're giving him four downs any way you slice it because they need to score to tie the game. Like, it is going to be so improbable to stop Patrick Mahomes four times in an overtime period with the Super Bowl on the line. You want the pressure on the Chiefs' defense. Instead, you put the pressure on your own defense. By, by coming up short. And they did a great job. What, what they did do on that first drive. They moved right down the field. But when it came in that short yarded situation. To the red zone. It, it failed. And large in part because of that lack of ability. To pick up blitzes. I'll talk about that theme occurring throughout the game. You know, On that third and four. Right at the ten for, for San Fran. Unable to prepare. And understand that the Chiefs are going to set in the house on that play. Just some bad coaching when it mattered most for San Francisco. That's the reason I believe that they lost Super Bowl 58. Electing to take the ball first in overtime was a questionable move when when I was watching it live, and I firmly believe that even more now that, now that the game played out the way it did. Um, on the flip side, Andy Reid, he is one of the greatest coaches to, to ever be around the game of football. Now a three-time Super Bowl champion. Three, all three coming with the Chiefs. I mean, he... What he's done with this group consistently year in and year out to have them at the top of the sport is truly remarkable. Um, the defense, I'll talk about Spagnolo and the defense very, very shortly. But Andy Reid having his team, you know, even when it doesn't look pretty like it did through through most of those first three quarters, to keep the team level-headed coming out of the break because they looked they looked rattled in that first half. No lie, those first thirty minutes they looked a little bit dis- little bit dysfunctional, a little bit uncomfortable. But coming out of halftime, it was a different team. Uh, they they looked way more locked in, and they looked back to the Chiefs that we saw throughout these playoffs. Um, you know, being able to handle anything that went their way. Uh, but but Andy Reid, wow, I just mean. Wow, three-time Super Bowl champ to continue to do it with these Chiefs and Mahomes and this crew is is truly, truly remarkable. Um, let's talk about the Chiefs' defense. Lots to talk about there. Steve Spagnuolo becomes the most decorated assistant coach of all time with his fourth Super Bowl. What he's done with this Chiefs' defense. I mean, the Chiefs' defense is the youngest unit in the NFL, and they were one of, if not the most dominant groups in football this entire season. The Chiefs leaned on their defense all year long. Not what you customarily think when it comes to the Kansas City Chiefs, but that's the identity of this group. I think now, I think going forward, leaning on that star-studded, youthful defense to continue to pick them up and lead them through. Truly remarkable. The secondary, Legereus Sneed, Trent McDuffie, all of those guys are... Phenomenal playmakers back there, and they made huge plays all throughout the season, all throughout the playoffs. You got to tip your cap to them. The front being able to get timely pressure on Brock Purdy, Chris Jones disrupting that third and four play in overtime because Jawan Jennings won that route. He he won that zig route at the bottom. Uh, um, you know, on on the t- TV it was the the bottom right of the screen, but on the on the right side of the formation, he won his one on one matchup 
uh, was was open near the goal line, but since Chris Jones did a great job of getting that penetration up the middle and disrupting that play, did not allow Brock Purdy enough time to to get it to Jennings for the touchdown for San Francisco, and that's what Kansas City does so well. Spagnola with those timely blitzes, being able to disguise pressures, so that way the 49ers were unable to pick it up and, and you know force Brock Purdy to deliver the football earlier than he would have liked. In timely situations, not just in overtime, but down the stretch uh, in the the third and fourth quarters as well. Um, Truly remarkable job by the the captain and and the leader of this defense, Steve Spagnuolo, on the sideline uh, to to coordinate such a great game plan. And, And even outside of the timely pressures, looking at how the game transpired... Mahomes and the offense could not get much of anything going. You know, they only got a touchdown late in the third quarter for their first score of the game after the muff punt, finding Marcus Valdez scantling for that 16 yard score. But the defense in that first half did not let it get out of hand. Such a huge part of why Kansas City was able to ultimately come out on top and win Super Bowl 58 because of that defense playing the way they did all game long. Shutting down the rushing attack, Christian McCaffrey could not get much of anything going in you know in, in the second and third quarters. Yes, he was able to do some damage down the stretch, uh, but my oh my, the, the Chiefs' defense is truly marvelous, truly truly marvelous in this game. Unbelievable showing to keep McCaffrey to just 80 yards on the ground, and, and overall as a rushing attack. Just 3.5 yards per carry for for San Francisco. One of the more dynamic rushing attacks in all of football. And they did it last week, you know, two weeks ago against Baltimore in the AFC title game. Held a group that led the NFL in rushing attempts to minimal impact on the ground. I mean, Kansas City has been the neutralizer of team strengths all postseason long. Truly incredible. Super Bowl 58 champions. For the third time in five years and back-to-back, the Kansas City Chiefs, 25-22. I mean, talk about Mahomes, and, and that's going to be the big storyline, but that defense deserves every bit of praise you can give them because of the work they did, and the Chiefs are really cementing themselves as the next great dynasty. I mean, you look what surrounded Brady when he was with the Patriots when they were on their dynasty run. Consistently solid defenses. They weren't the most flashy you know, skilled players, but but they got the job done. You had that generational tight end with with Gronkowski. The Chiefs have that with Kelsey. You have the the elite, best in the world quarterback, and it's it's a recipe for a dynasty. And and that's what the Chiefs are making themselves. You know, not to the gr- not to the degree that the Patriots did, but my oh my, it is the next dynasty in the making. You go from the Tom Brady era. And spring yourselves right into the Patrick Mahomes era. It is unbelievable what we're seeing. We, we, we are truly seeing the next great dynasty un, unfolding in front of our very eyes. Um, but it is time real quick before we go to break to read a KUR notebook. Attention KU students. Did you know undergraduate research and creativity gives you many of the resources needed to publish and present your work at regional, national, or international levels? To learn more, please visit www.kutztown.edu forward slash UGRC. You can also stay up to date on conferences and publication opportunities by following UGRC on Instagram at UGRC underscore KU. This message of community interest brought to you by the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR. All right, back here, hour number one of heavy hitters. 
Jack, I'm your host for today. We will have Mitchell Spendley back for the Friday show. Uh, but talking all things Super Bowl 58 gave the Chiefs defense their much, much deserved praise for, for all the work that they did throughout this game. Forcing Purdy into some situations where he throw it earlier than he would have liked. Getting those timely pressures and holding McCaffrey in this potent rushing attack. Largely in check. Largely in check. I mean, McCaffrey's longest run in this game was 11 yards. That is crazy for considering how explosive of a back Christian McCaffrey is. Um, but San Fran comes up short again. And such a talented, talented group. Unable to get the job done once more. It stings. It hurts so much on the San Francisco side. Uh, but they're going to have to regroup and get back at it next year. A lot of these same players are going to be back for, for this group um, to try to get back after it and get to Super Bowl 59 and try to you know climb the mountain and ultimately reach the peak and win a Super Bowl under the guidance of, of Kyle, Kyle Shanahan. But we're going to step aside for the first time today. When we come back, more Super Bowl 58 discussion here in hour number one of Heavy Hitters on the radio voice of Kutztown University. KUR Kutztown. And welcome back to Heavy Hitters here on the radio voice of Kutztown University. KUR Kutztown. I'm Jack Heim. Wow. Unbelievable weekend in the world of sports. Super Bowl 58. Chiefs win it again. Talked a lot about what happened in this game and what led to the Chiefs being able to come out on top and win the Super Bowl for the second consecutive year. Again, the first team to do that since the New England Patriots in 2003 and 2004 and just the seventh team all time to win back-to-back titles are the Kansas City Chiefs. Talked about Patrick Mahomes. This offense loosely, largely, is it's the Chiefs defense I went in-depth and talked about, and, and rightfully so because I think they were the story of this game. You know, Everyone's going to talk about how Mahomes now has the three titles, this, that, and the other thing, and how he's chasing Brady's legacy, but... The defense needs to be the focal point of discussion here. So many stars on that side of the ball for Kansas City. An incredible unit. They're going to have to find a way to bring some key guys back, like Chris Jones and LeJarius Sneed. Uh, but if they can find a way to keep those guys around, my oh my, is it going to be a lot of the same that we saw this past year for Kansas City. Uh, and we'll see how they utilize those those draft picks um, You know, to try to get some... Other players here around this roster, you know, they're not going to be in a position to draft stars in the draft, but they'll be they'll be in a position where they can get people who can not, you know, try backfilling. I, I'm trying to get out here, backfilling rosters, uh, your roster to the point where you know, maybe not right away, but the guys you draft this year could could be an impact a couple of years down the line uh, and help you know fill the gaps for for some of these people who are going to be going in and out because you. So much as you'd like to, you're not going to be able to run back the same team, um, you know, next year. You're going to have guys leaving. Every team does. Every successful team that goes on to win championships has guys to part, and you got to find a way to to, to fill those holes. And you know, the Chiefs front office has been one of the best in the business at, you know, finding ways to mix and match and and you know acquire the right type of talent to fit the mold of this team, uh, and and. That's why they've won three championships in the span of five years. But let's talk about Patrick Mahomes, take a deep dive into what he did so well in this game. And a lot of it happened with his legs, especially in the second half. Nine rushes for 66 yards, uh, a long of 22 on the ground, 
for Patrick Mahomes. You look at a couple of key plays he made with his legs uh, in the second half, including two in the overtime period. You know, rushing for eight on a fourth and one to keep the game alive for them. And 19 more later on in the drive on a scramble to put Kansas City down inside the 15 at the Niners' 13-yard line a couple of times where the Niners just did not have a linebacker as a quarterback spy, allowed Mahomes to step up, take off, and get some key yardage with his legs to propel the Chiefs down the field. And really looking at that last drive in overtime, those crosser routes were killer to the San Francisco defense. Rasheed Rice had one. Travis Kelsey had the huge play to get them down to the 11. That was, excuse me, that was back in regulation that Kelsey had that crosser uh, to get them to the 11, ultimately before they had to settle for that field goal to get the game to overtime. By the way, on that same play, or on the same uh, drive right after the Kelsey crosser, where they went one-on-one covered by Fred Warner, eerily familiar to the pass he caught against Matt Milano in the divisional round uh, against the Bills a couple of years back. But Rasheed Rice on that play where they went one-on-one against Fred Warner to Kelsey, Rice was wide open in the middle of the field, and the Chiefs could have got a buzzer-beater touchdown to win the game before overtime. So that was an interesting tidbit. Uh, I saw back on a clip um, uh, on social media. I was like, wow, Rice is wide open. If Mahomes just took an extra second to read over the middle of the field, he could have found Rice to be the regulation hero. Uh, But for Kansas City, it didn't matter. They got the win. They were Super Bowl champs. They just did it a period later, finding Nicole Hardman for the winning touchdown. By the way, how about that? How about McCole Hardman's journey? Started the year with the Jets, gets back to Kansas City, has that huge reception in the first half to put them down inside the 15 before Pacheco coughed it up, and then he ends up with a game-winning touchdown. He had two big plays in this game, did Nicole Hardman. Um, you know, the perseverance for Marquez Valdez scaling in this game. He caught the touchdown, but you know had a five- or six-yard pass that that instead he shook off a tackle and ran backwards and lost four yards. Mahomes fed it to him the next play to make it a third and intermediate. Um, the the confidence that Mahomes had to continue to get it to MVS throughout the day um, and down the stretch, that was huge as he's made some big plays uh, you know, throughout the playoffs, even before the Super Bowl. Um, not Pacheco's best day, uh, but again, it was... You talk about just, just doing enough, right? Not being a big difference maker, but being enough of a threat and doing enough to keep the defense on its toes. That's 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 the role Pacheco played in this game uh, for the Kansas City offense. Of course, Kelsey and I catches 93 yards. He had to be a big impact in this game if the Chiefs wanted to win the Super Bowl, and that's exactly what he was. Let's focus on the flip side now, though. Let's talk about San Francisco, how offensively the passing game shaped up and what are they going to do moving forward? Because the Chiefs, they have no concern. They have Mahomes, they have Kelsey. A, a lot of the same pieces are coming back next year. Just tying up some of the loose ends with the defensive talent to try to get them back for this group. But but for San Francisco, they're getting McCaffrey back next year. They're going to have Debo. They have Purdy. But, you know, I wholeheartedly believe that they have their quarterback for the future in Brock Purdy. This game, this loss, was not on Brock Purdy. It most certainly was not on Brock Purdy. Didn't turn the football over this game. Made smart decisions. And, you know, a couple of failed blitz pickups by the front 
was a big difference maker in the fourth quarter and in overtime. And that's not on Purdy. You know, the the ability to not max protect on a third down, I think, is a bit of a problem. You know Steve Spagnolo as a, as a defensive coordinator, I think, if you're the Chiefs, you know his M.O. He's not going to go down without a fight. He's not going to go down without sending the pressure and try to get home. You know, on your quarterback, you got to be able to recognize that you need an extra blocker or you need to, to you know, help protect and give Purdy that extra second that you could possibly give when, when they're sending a blitz. Because that could have been the difference at the end of the day. If Purdy has an extra second to, to read the field there on that overtime play, he could have very well got that to Jennings. It would have been a walk-in touchdown, and you're looking at a whole new ball game. But not to me, that was not the case. But for Purdy as a whole, through for 255 and a touchdown in this game, made some impressive plays You know, on that overtime drive to be able to roll out of the pocket, find Kyle Juszczyk to get that first down. The playmaking ability from Purdy when it had to be on point was he didn't do anything that would lose the 49ers this game. Uh, and you know while he didn't make a game-winning play, the game was not on Purdy. The, the loss does not fall back on number 13 in white for San Francisco. Um, Purdy looked poised. He looked ready for the moment. Did not look like he was afraid to play in the Super Bowl. That's the kind of guy you need leading your offense. That's the kind of guy you you want to be playing quarterback for your franchise. And Brock Purdy showed that level in this game. Showed that, yeah, when, when the lights are the brightest and in the biggest game of the season, really a spectacle in sports, that, that Brock Purdy was able to step up and make some plays down the stretch for San Francisco. A couple of impressive drives you know, in the fourth quarter. Even in overtime, that overtime drive was really impressive, and it, and it stalled out because of great defense by Kansas City. Nothing that Brock Purdy did led to the 49ers coming up short for a touchdown and having to settle for a field goal there. I just think that, you know, the difference, that, the difference in these offenses is that Shanahan, very on script, very schemed and technical, and, you know, when it comes down to it, if things break down, the Chiefs offense has that magic, man. It just has that ability to, when it's the tensest, tightest moments of the game, you always know that they're going to come through. 99% of the time, the Chiefs are going to be able to deliver. And I don't have that same level of confidence when looking at that angle for San Francisco. And... It's just a shame. It was just a shame how close they came and, and they fell short again. Defensively, San Fran, they, they mentioned the first half pressure and they just got tired in the second half. Both defenses did. Um, but they had some great plays. They really, really did. Even in that third quarter, third and goal, they, they get a sack on Mahomes, avoid a touchdown allowed there. You have to settle for another field goal. By the way, I haven't even talked about this yet. Hats off to the special teams in this game. Um, Chris Conley had a couple of big plays on punts for San Francisco, downed it at the one, absolutely slung Richie James to the ground on another punt. Uh, he was huge special teams wise. Um, you look at Harrison Butker, Jake Moody, both of these kickers stepping up and, and both of them making 50 plus yard field goals. Uh, Moody set the record with that 55 yarder for longest field goal made in the Super Bowl, and Butker proceeded to promptly break that by drilling a 57 yarder. What both these kickers did in this game, their impact was truly special. Considering Moody's only a rookie, he made some big, big kicks for San Francisco. The one blemish being the blocked extra point. 
Uh, that was squarely on, on Jake Moody, just a bit of a low kick. Um, you, you saw in the replay, got it up towards the ankle and wasn't able to drill it high enough to get it over uh, the blockade of Kansas City, and it got swatted and blocked, and, and that ended up being a huge play because instead of being, you know, 20 or instead of being 17 13 it's 16 13 and the Chiefs were still within a field goal and went on to tie the game but um a lot of big plays a fantastic fantastic Super Bowl that the defense has shined in the first half the offense has shined late in the third quarter and and the fourth quarter and overtime really the whole second half I would say as, as a majority but an instant classic of a Super Bowl um, I, I think probably the best Super Bowl we've seen since the Patriots played the Eagles and um, you know New England Atlanta. I think this really matches up with with those Super Bowls in terms of entertainment and just a great quality of game. And you know if you're good, if you're going to complain that this game was was you know too low scoring and too you know not entertaining and too defensive, man. You're just not a real football fan. I, I firmly believe that you, you're not a real football fan. And, and I was saying that. I was saying that during the game, man, at first, you know, thinking about it, looking, watching live and saying, oh, this is just, just bad offense. But, you know, I, I took some thought after the game and realized that it was just two of the best defenses in the league going toe-to-toe in that first half. And when they eventually started to get tired and started to wear out, that's when the, you know, immensely talented and, and elite offenses of these groups started to show up and take over. So overall, a fantastic Super Bowl. What a game that was played. But the Chiefs do it again. Back-to-back, three in five years. Mahomes becomes the fifth quarterback all-time to win three Super Bowls. Um, and at his age, he has a chance to do a lot more um, and become, you know, I think he's firmly in the top ten of all time quarterbacks as it currently stands, um, you know, with, with the accolades he has and what he's been able to do, especially this year with, with the, you know, offensive talent around him, the adversity that that group faced. I mean, it was not a clean regular season for Kansas city by any means, especially offensively, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Kelsey had a down regular season, but when it mattered most in the playoffs, he stepped up, dominated, took over, like the Chiefs needed him to do to go on this run uh, and establish himself as the generational tight end that people have come to know Travis Kelsey as. And overall, a great season for both of these teams. The Chiefs are champions. The Niners have to real regroup uh, and, and refocus and go back at it with one of the NFL's best rosters yet again. I don't expect this team, in terms of next year, to be going anywhere. I expect them to still be near or the standard of the sport um, but especially in the NFC, the Niners are going to roll out a roster that I think is the best in the NFC going into next year. Uh, so they'll be they'll be able to compete, get right back into the, into the you know competition of acquiring a Super Bowl. And while it stings now, it's it's not over in terms of the window for this group to be able to get a championship. Uh, but you know, I think I think for them, they'd like to stop running into Kansas City uh, and and Patrick Mahomes. That is that is. For sure, on the San Francisco front. Uh, but what a Super Bowl. Put a bow on it. The NFL season has come and gone. And Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, and the Chiefs are once again Super Bowl champions. What a game and what a finish to the NFL season. Uh, that was Super Bowl 58. An absolutely incredible game to, to end the season. 
But we're going to move on real quick before our last break of hour number one. Got some MLB to talk about. Pitchers and catchers starting to report today. Officially, we've turned the page, end of the NFL season, and it is baseball slash college basketball season uh, for me. Uh, But I'm so, so excited for baseball. Uh, A couple of veteran moves to talk about. Still the big fish free agents on the market. Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, uh, Cody Bellinger, and Matt Chapman are really those big four free agents all of which are still on the market as of right now. We'll see where they end up. Uh, I expect a couple of them to probably sign before um, we're on the air for the next heavy hitters. That's just my inclination uh, because we are getting awfully close um, to the start of spring training. It is less than two weeks away um, for the Mets uh, and the Phillies, both starting on February the 24th, uh, a week from Saturday. So cannot say how excited I am for, for that to rev up, to see the young talent for my Mets, um, you know, in, in spring camp and to see how some interesting positional battles will unfold. But let's start talking about these veteran moves that happened here today. A couple of players signed. Uh, veteran outfielder Jerkson Profar returning to the San Diego Padres on a one-year deal. Move I think makes perfect sense for both sides. Profar has publicly expressed his love for playing in San Diego, and, you know, the Padres needed to make this move. Profar becomes only the third outfielder currently on the Padres roster, so prior to today, they were rolling out an incomplete outfield, um, you know, right up to the brink of, of spring training games starting to be played. So, yes, well, you can fill in some minor leaguers into the starting lineup for spring, spring training, but, you know, Profar is going to be a, a 26-man roster guy, you know, come opening day for the Padres, um, you know, to probably slot in as a bench piece. But, you know, if they don't make another move, it, it might be as a starting outfielder come opening day in late March. So Padres, a good veteran veteran depth move here to pick up the outfielder jerks and Profar. One-year deal. Um, Profar spent most of last season with the Rockies uh, with a slash line of 242, batting average 321 on base and a 368 slugging and 125 games, but actually landed back with the Padres after being waived by Colorado. So Profar back to the Padres, a good move for San Diego to get a familiar face back in the building after losing both Trent Grisham and Juan Soto this offseason in a trade. We'll talk about that coming up because we're going to be doing our AL East floor and ceilings here on heavy hitters but we're going to step aside one final time in hour number one when we come back further discussing some of the veteran free agent moves that transpired here today uh, and then getting into our floor ceilings uh, for the american league east division that going to be coming up at the tail end of hour number one and leaking over into hour number two so so much more to get to here on heavy hitters on the radio voice of kutztown university KUR's KUR Kutztown. And welcome back to Heavy Hitters here on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. I'm Jack Heim. Hour number one, rolling on. Talking all things MLB. Now just wrapped up the Super Bowl discussion. What a game it was in Super Bowl 58 between the Chiefs and the 49ers. Um, But a lot to talk about on the baseball realm. Pitchers and catchers starting to report today. It is officially baseball season, and I cannot be more excited for it because that means... Warmer weather is going to be on the horizon. Um, is on the horizon. So here, smack dab, I would say, early to mid February. Hoping by a little bit after opening day, uh, we'll be into some some warmer weather and some better days. Hasn't been crazy cold, but we got some snow forecasted for tomorrow. So um, 
you know, for all those who may be listening and have to commute, uh, whether to work um, or such, just be safe on the roads. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure exactly how much we're supposed to get, but around the four to seven inch um, range is what what I've seen. Maybe possibly more, depending on the exact area you're in. But for Kutztown, four to seven. So um, if you have to go anywhere tomorrow, be safe um, and you know make a responsible decision in terms of where and how far you have to go. All right, uh, enough of that, though. Back into sports discussion. Talked about jerks and Profar returning to the San Diego Padres. A smart move for both sides. Profar has expressed his um, you know, love for playing in the city of San Diego and playing with the Padres, and they needed an outfielder, only the third outfielder currently on the Padres roster. So talked enough about Profar, what he did last year with the Rockies, but let's move on. Veteran catcher Yasmani Grandol signs a one-year, $2 million deal to go to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, Grandol brings a nice veteran presence uh, to that room to help with a younger guy like Andy Rodriguez. Uh, not a great 2023 campaign for Yasmani Grandol. Uh, boasted a negative .7 war, uh, only a .234 batting average with eight home runs and a 80 WRC+. Grandal really peaked from 2015 through 2019. Uh, he's always been known for having a great eye at the plate, uh, being in the 90th plus percentile of walk rate and chase rate for all but two years of his career, spanning from 2015 to 2023. Um, the Pirates catchers now include a, a pretty crowded room. Jason DeLay, they got Tyler Heineman after claiming him. He was let go by the Mets, traded to the Red Sox for cash, uh, I believe, Waived by Boston and picked up by Pittsburgh, so they have now Heineman for some depth. Andy Rodriguez, one of their young call-ups from last year, uh, and of course another veteran, Austin Hedges, mostly known for his defense, not known uh, to swing it particularly well at the plate for the Bucks. Um, but I think it's a decent move in terms of bringing in a guy who has a lot of experience to his name. Uh, has bounced around, started his career with San Diego, uh, had a you know string of successful years with the Dodgers. Uh, spent a year in Milwaukee and then spent the last several with, with the White Sox before now coming to uh, Pittsburgh, you know, nearing the tail end of his solid big league career. Uh, but definitely, I think, a, a solid presence to help coach uh, the younger guys in this room uh, is Yasmani Grandal. Uh, so the Pirates make a nice depth move here as we approach uh, spring training and pitchers and catchers reporting. See, so Monte Grandal now has a home for the 2024 season. All right, let's move on. New York Mets make a depth move. Ben Gamble, uh, the outfielder, signs a minor league deal with New York. Appeared in only six games of the Padres last season, but in 115 games with the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 2022 season. Posted nine home runs, 46 RBIs with a slash line of 232 batting average, 324 on base, and a 369 slug with an OPS plus of 97 um 100 is the league average uh, for that benchmark so he's been right around an average hitter for a vast majority of his career i think it's just a solid depth move for new york he'll get a spring training invite um but again what david stearns has made an emphasis on this offseason for the mets is, is making sure this roster has ample amounts of depth both with pitching and with hitting and having guys that you know if you get into an injury situation and injuries start to pile up you have guys you can rely upon slide them up to the big league level and and have some confidence that there's not going to be a major drop off in the players you're rolling out every day uh and i gamble is one of those types of players sure he's not flashy sure he's not the greatest player 
you know, in the world, but he is a guy that you can, if need be, call him up as, a, as an extra outfielder and say, hey, we can slot this guy into the lineup knowing that he's got some big league experience under his belt and he's been here and he knows what it's like to be a professional baseball player. Uh, and now having to slide, you know, let's say a younger guy who's who's never been up and, you know, gets antsy that he has to get thrusted into a role where he needs to play consistently and be a factor of, of a team day in and day out. That's never a situation you want to get yourself into as an organization. So it is always nice to have those extra veteran guys, you know, down, you know, in AAA that if you need to, if you need to rely upon them, call them up in case of injuries or, or other such reasons. But that's something I've loved that this offseason David Stearns has done for the New York Mets, Ben Gamble, minor league deal. Not flashy, but a nice little extra depth outfield piece for New York. Uh, more than likely going to be starting the year with Syracuse. Um, unless he unless he has a really good spring training, you never know. I mean, he has that option. would be worth $1.2 million if he does get to the major league roster. Uh, so Ben Gamble to the Mets, minor league deal. All right, let's talk about the Philadelphia Phillies. Spencer Turnbull. Signs with Philadelphia, one-year, $2 million deal uh, with $2 million in incentives. Pitched seven starts last year with Detroit, posting a not-so-good 7.26 ERA. But turn back the clock a little bit to 2021, and Turnbull was a dominant pitcher in nine starts prior to an injury. Pitched with 2.88 ERA in those nine starts, including the eighth no-hitter in Detroit Tigers history. So I think it's a solid rotational depth move for Philadelphia. Right now, he would slot into that sixth starter role. Uh, but again, it's all barring that Turnbull can stay on the field. Just 16 starts combined over the last three seasons. Uh, the injuries have certainly been a bit of an issue for Spencer Turnbull. Uh, but if he can find a way to get back to that 2021 form, the Phillies could uh, have signed a you know solid pitcher for a very, very cheap contract uh, for, for, for one season. And... You know, with baseball being such a unique sport that it's not just the 26 guys you field on the opening day roster having an impact on you throughout the season. You realistically need, you know, about 35 to 40, probably even, you know, even more in some cases for the teams, depending on how many injuries you have uh, to contribute throughout a full 162 game season. Uh, so Turnbull to the Phillies, one year, $2 million, $2 million in incentives uh, if Turnbull can pitch enough to reach those. Um, but that is going to take us to another message from the KUR Notebook. Attention KU community. Want KUR at your event? No problem. Go to www.kutztown.edu forward slash KUR. Find live events forward slash remotes. Read the reminders and fill out the form. Our promotional director or an eboard member of KUR will reach out to you as soon as possible. An important reminder about events is that KUR needs at least three weeks notice to even consider your event, no exceptions. This message is brought to you by the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR. All right, back here, hour number one of heavy hitters, rounding it out. Uh, all MLB talk at the top of the show, discussed all things Super Bowl 58. If you missed that part and want to go back and listen, check us out on Spotify by searching Kutztown University Radio. You can find this episode, uh, this edition, and every other past show of heavy hitters right there on Spotify. Uh but back to MLB discussion. Cannot wait for the season officially to start. Opening day, at least for my Mets, March 28th. I believe a lot of teams is that the case too. Uh, but so, so excited that it is right around the corner. Pitchers and catchers reporting today. Um, 
I can't believe it. I can't believe it's already here. Um, but that's the spot. That's the spot we find ourselves in. Time does move very, very quickly. Uh, but that's enough about the veteran moves in free agency. It is time to start discussing the floor and ceilings of the AL East teams going into 2024. Um, I'm going to go in reverse order from the standings of last year. So starting off with none other than the Boston Red Sox, who took the seller last year in this division at a record of 78-84. and 84. Not a great season for the Boston Red Sox a year ago. And and I am not really seeing a situation where they don't finish in this same spot again. Uh, that's a little bit of a teaser to what my possible floor and ceiling predictions are. But, you know, if you're looking at this group, not a lot has changed. Heading into 2024 thus far, again, there's still some big fish on the market. So, if Boston's able to clear some money, they might be able to pounce. They talked about moving Kenley Jansen to try to free up some more money and maybe going after a guy like a Jordan Montgomery to help you know bolster up that starting rotation. But as it currently stands at this Red Sox roster, I'm not impressed one bit. I think it is not a good roster. I think it's definitively the worst roster in the American League East. And I'm not really forecasting a finish outside of fifth in the AL East, once again, for Boston. I just don't see them finishing above either, any of, I should say, any of the four teams in this division besides them. It is going to be tough sledding, I believe, once again in 2024. For the Boston Red Sox, look at their key offseason moves. Acquired outfielder Tyler O'Neill in a trade with the St. Louis Cardinals. Acquired shortstop Vaughn Grissom in a trade with the Atlanta Braves that sent Chris Sale back to the Atlanta Braves, an interesting move there. Um, and starting pitcher Lucas Giolito. Uh, they signed him as a free agent to a one-year contract. So those are the key offseason moves that the Boston Red Sox made. You look at the key departures. I already mentioned Chris Sale, but Alex Verdugo departed to the Bronx in a trade with the New York Yankees. James Paxton left, as did Justin Turner. And Adam Duvall and the outfielder is still a free agent. Uh, was still having discussions to return to Boston. The Angels were also linked as a possible destination for Adam Duvall, so we'll see where he ends up as he's still out there at this current moment in time. Uh, but key moves, key departures uh, listed off for the Boston Red Sox. Time to give you my ultimate floor and ceiling. So for the Boston Red Sox, you look at them heading into 2024, not an impressive lineup. You know, main guys, Rafael Devers, Tristan Casas. The, the biggest can Trevor Story ever get back to the form he was with the Colorado Rockies. Trevor Story was a guy who popped early, was had an incredible rookie season, got off to a fantastic start of his MLB career with the Rockies, tapered off a little bit. Injuries have kind of hampered him over the past couple of years, but if he can stay healthy, what can the Red Sox get out of Trevor Story? That's a big question. They were possibly thinking about trading Masataka Yoshida, who they signed last offseason, uh, the outfielder from Japan, but not a lot of teams wanted to bite on him in terms of, of trading and acquiring him, so it looks like he'll be back with the Red Sox for the 2024 season. Um, great contact bat, doesn't possess a whole lot of pop. Tyler O'Neill, an interesting outfielder acquisition, mentioned him, expects to slot into the starting uh, lineup on opening day, as is Vaughn Grissom as the shortstop for this team, you know, or as the second baseman, I should say. My apologies. They're going to put Story back at short, but I mean, what are they going to get out of Grissom? You know, he showed some flashes with the Atlanta Braves, but Grissom's a guy who was always highly touted in that Atlanta system, 
but never got a crack at consistent playing time just because of, you know, guys were who were in front of him. If you look at this last year, Orlando Arcia stole the show at shortstop. He made it to the All-Star game um, as the starter to Orlando Arcia because of how good he was for Atlanta. And, you know, that really kept Vaughn Grissom down in AAA Gwinnett. And when he got called back up, didn't get a fair shake of consistent playing time in Atlanta. Uh, they decided it was time to move on from him uh, and get a intriguing veteran pitcher and Chris Sale in return. So what are the Red Sox going to get out of Vaughn Grissom? It's actually funny. He debuted at Fenway Park. Did Vaughn Grissom hit a home run for the Braves at Fenway in his MLB debut? So kind of funny how that stuff works out. Gets traded to spend now his full time with the Red Sox and playing at his home stadium. New home stadium, that is, of Fenway Park. But if I'm looking at this lineup up and down, I am not consistently. I mean, I'm not fully impressed. Sure, they have a couple of nice bats in the middle of that order. But as a whole, this group... I think is going to struggle in in 2024. I just don't see a lot of pop in this lineup. You have Devers, you have Casas, but you know how much power to get out of Trevor Story. That is going to be huge to to affect how this Red Sox team is in 2024. Um, what are they going to get out of Trevor Story? Um, you look at the bench. Uh, I'm not really impressed. You have Reese McGuire as your catcher. Um, you know Valdez, Ref Snyder, and Dahlbeck rounded out. Just not great depth. I, I think for for Boston at all. You look at the starting rotation, I mean it is either the lineup could have a could have a, you know, not a great year. The starting rotation is not much better. They brought in Lucas Giolito and he has a chance to be the possible ace for this team heading into 2024. You know, they're surrounding him with Nick Pavetta, Brian Bayo, who they had high aspirations for in this system. Did they for Brian Bayo? He is not panned out like many in this Red Sox organization thought he would. Um still you know, a pitchable guy every five days at the big league level, but he's not the, you know, top end of the rotation piece they thought they could get out of him. Um, and, you know, looking at this Red Sox rotation, not impressive to me. They thought, again, talked about Kenley Jansen. He's the headline pitcher in this bullpen, but, you know, they were talking about moving on from him to try to dump his salary and trade him to a contending team and try to just get some pieces back. Overall, my floor and ceiling for Boston um, floor, I'm going to have them at 73 wins. I don't see this group, you know, finishing much worse than that. There's still some talented players on this team. I think if everything goes wrong, the pitching is just not good at all. Uh, the lineup continues to lack consistent power. Uh, so I have the floor at 73 wins. Ceiling, I have 81. Uh, a little bit above what they had last year, finishing with those 78 wins. I think if everything breaks right, they can find a way to get right around 500 uh, or just below at that 81 mark. Again, floor, everything goes wrong. Ceiling, everything goes right. And I think they're going to land somewhere in between. I think if I had to predict, I'd say right around that 75-76 win mark is where I'd place these Red Sox um, You know, as it currently stands uh, in, in the 2024 season, if I had to project where they would end up, I'd have them right around that 75 to 76 win mark. But that is going to do it for hour number one. And don't go anywhere. A whole other hour of heavy hitters coming up right here on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. More MLB talk with the AL East floor and ceilings. We got the New York Yankees on deck uh, talking about their massive offseason. So all that and more in hour number two of heavy hitters here on KUR. And welcome back to Heavy Hitters here, hour number two on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. I'm Jack Heim. What a great first hour it was. All things Super Bowl 58 we discussed. 
Talked about the veteran free agent moves on the MLB side of things and started to loosely and lightly discuss the floor and ceilings of every ALE squad, starting off with the Boston Red Sox. But now, let's turn it over. Let's start talking about the New York Yankees. How will the Bronx, Bom- Bronx Bombers shape up here in the 2024 campaign? Well, I think they're going to be pretty good. They made some nice moves in the offseason mainly by acquiring Juan Soto in a trade with the San Diego Padres. He's going to slot very nicely into this order, and he should have a fantastic time playing 81 home games at Yankee Stadium with that very friendly uh, short porch in right field for Mr. Soto. Uh, He's going to get a very nice reception by the Yankees faithful when he makes his debut in the Bronx at Yankee Stadium. Um, but let's talk further about their offseason. Mentioned Juan Soto in the trade from the Padres. Also got Alex Verdugo as an outfield option in that trade with the Red Sox. And Trent Grisham coming along with Soto in that mega deal with San Diego. They also acquired starting pitcher Marcus Stroman in a two-year deal um, as he was a free agent. And a couple of trades with the Dodgers, getting a couple of left-handed relievers in Victor Gonzalez and Caleb Ferguson. So some nice additions there. Uh, Got a couple of left-handed options out of the bullpen. Um, Shirt up that lineup with a couple of outfield acquisitions to surround Aaron Judge. And get some depth. So, you know, hopefully they can try to keep Giancarlo Stanton primarily healthy this year. That's always been an obstacle for the Yankees for the past couple of seasons. Uh, But some nice, nice outfield pieces coming to the Bronx with a couple of trades. uh, Sharing up that bullpen. And Stroman gives them some nice consistency uh, in the middle of that starting rotation. Uh, Stroman known for being a ground ball pitcher. Um, So, you know, we'll see how that plays at Yankee Stadium with that short porch and right against some lefties. But when he's at his best, Stroman has shown he can be a, a very, very solid pitcher. Um, you know, did it across town with the Mets. Had had some good times with, with the New York Mets. Now going to the Yankees on a two-year deal. We'll see how he can pitch in the Bronx. Some key departures. Lost Keenan Middleton uh, and Wandy Peralta. Some relievers out of the bullpen. Um, Luis Severino and Frankie Motas, a couple of starting pitching options, um, departed in free agency. And did utility player Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. So a couple of departures there for the Yankees. They certainly brought in a lot more talent than they lost. Uh, and the talent that they did lose, um, you know, not not high-end talent uh, by any means. So and not, not saying that they're bad players, but they're not the, – the losses were not the type of talent – that they brought in is, is what I'm getting at here. Uh, but for the Yankees, mentioned that lineup, Soto and Verdugo should slide in pretty nice. There's a couple left-handed bats. Um, and Trent Grisham is a viable bench option. This guy was getting everyday playing time with the Padres. Now he moves into more of a, a fourth outfielder bench role here with the Yankees. Uh, I think that's a great move for him, a great move for New York. Um, I think that he's the type of scrappy player um, that can fit in pretty nicely in New York with the Yankees is Trent Grisham. Mentioned Stroman, the, the main pickup in that starting rotation, slots in as the projected th- third starting pitcher behind Garrett Cole and Carlos Rodon, uh, surrounded also by Clark Schmidt and Nestor Cortez, rounds at a very solid starting five for the New York Yankees. And looking at that bullpen, it's still one of the better ones in baseball. 
You're going to get Scott Efros back this year. Was an interesting guy they traded for from the Cubs at the deadline a couple of years ago. Didn't pitch a whole lot last year, but he is such an intriguing pitcher with his arm angle. Um, you add Caleb Ferguson. You have Loizaga and Clay Holmes at the back end of the bullpen. Uh, this is a pretty solid roster. Um, you know, up and down for the Yankees should be leading them to contend here in the AL East. No doubt about that. So time to give you my floor and ceiling for the New York Yankees. I'm going to have their floor at 83 wins. Uh, I think if everything goes wrong, this team can still find a way to get to 500. Um, They're just too talented, I think, of a team not to be able to get there, even if a doomsday-type scenario plays out for the Yankees in 2024. This is a group who got to 82 wins last year and didn't, you know, was not the best of teams. They were inconsistent. They were up and down, but they still found a way to get above 500 and get to 82 wins. I think a very similar finish could be in store if everything goes wrong in 2024 for the Yankees. I'm going to have their ceiling at 96 wins. I like the talent they brought in, but in this division, um, I think 96 wins is the absolute ceiling. If I had a forecast, I'd say right around 93, 94 would be where I see the Yankees ending up. And the only reason the ceiling's at 96 and not higher is because of what I think of some of the other teams in this division. Um, But yes, the Yankees should be in store to have a great, great 2024 campaign. Should be competing for, you know, they'll be, I think, in the divisional race all year long uh, and should be in line to get, I believe, the top wildcard spot in the American League or, or, you know, one of the top two wildcard spots. I do not see this Yankees team being the last one in uh, on the AL playoff picture. But that is it for the Yankees. 83 wins is the floor. 96 wins, I think, is the ceiling for this group. I could have probably bumped that up a little bit higher, but I went conservative and I went 96. Um, So that's where I stand with the New York Yankees heading in to the 2024 season. Before we get back into sports talk, we do have a message from the KUR Notebook here. Attention KU students, have you heard about KU Bears grant funding? The purpose of the KU Bears program is to support faculty student research pairs over the summer. The goals are for undergraduate students to develop the necessary skill set to become student researchers and to provide faculty members with paid student research assistance. Undergraduate students selected for the program will receive summer pay for research tasks assigned by a faculty supervisor. By assisting faculty members in their research, students selected for the program will obtain the knowledge and skills necessary for conducting advanced research in their field. To apply and learn more about KE Bears grant funding, please visit www.cutstown.edu forward slash UGRC and look under grants and sponsored projects. This message of community interest brought to you by the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR. All right, getting back into it here, hour number two, final hour of this Monday edition of Heavy Hitters. More baseball talk here on tap for you. Just to finish discussing what I think the floor and ceiling for the New York Yankees will be in 2024. All right, let's move on to the third place finisher in the American League East from a year ago being the Toronto Blue Jays. The Blue Jays were one of those dormant teams here in the offseason, a group that, you know, has made the playoffs the last couple of seasons but has failed to win a playoff series. And you'd think they'd be a little bit more hungry, but that is not the case um, from this Blue Jays ownership group and this front office. They seem to be content with having this group that will contend 
and can squeak into the playoffs year in and year out, but not be able to go far in the playoffs. I am not understanding what the goal here is for these Toronto Blue Jays. But let's talk about what happened in their offseason. The key offseason moves that they made, bringing in Justin Turner uh, as an infield slash DH option, uh, utility man Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, and relief pitcher Yariel Rodriguez, the Cuban native, uh, in 2022 pitched to a 1.15 ERA over in Japan. So what does this mean for the Blue Jays? What do I think they could achieve in the 2024 season? Well, let's talk about it. This lineup, I don't see I don't see a high ceiling for this group. A lot of the same guys that they had last year. The Dalton Varsho trade did not really work out too well for them in the early returns. Um, now they're bringing in Turner as the DH, a guy who is projected at 255 batting average with only 15 home runs this year. I don't Hate the move for Turner. I don't love the move for Turner either, though, for, for the Blue Jays. It doesn't really move the needle a whole heck of a lot for me personally. But for this group, I mean, it's just... I don't see a much different result happening this year than from past years. I, it's not going to be a group that's bad. It's not going to be a team who's going to you know drown and, and completely miss the playoffs and be a group that you say, wow, this group was really just not all that good. But they're not going to be a team that's... Wow, this group's incredible. They're going to be competing for the World Series. This is going to be a you know upper end of the middle tier of teams in the in the American League. They're a group that'll be a bottom end wild card tender. They'll be competing, I think, right around for that third, maybe that second wild card spot at best. This team just doesn't jump off the page to me. You know, I like George Springer, I like Bichette, Vladdy Jr. Um, you know, had a very unlucky year last year at the plate. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., statistically the most unlucky hitter in Major League Baseball. I see his fortunes changing in 2024. I, I think he's going to have a really solid season. Could push 40 home runs, in, in my mind, as, as a top-end um, performance in, in 2024. Could Vladdy Jr. hit close to 40 home runs? Um, but... The middle of this order, I just look at it, and I'm saying, you know, this is all projections on fan graphs here. You have Springer, Bichette, and Vladdy Jr. at the top of the order. I like that, but after that, Justin Turner, Kevin Biggio, Davis Schneider, Varsho. Like, it's a decent lineup, and it's got some good depth at the back end with with Kirk. Uh, Kiermaier had a solid year with um, Toronto last year, but I'm looking at this group, and I say, yeah, it's a, it's a slightly above-average lineup. With a, you know, veteran and experienced bench who can you can plug in and use in a variety of different ways with some defensive guys more like Isaiah Connor Falefa, Danny Jansen's a solid bench bat with catcher. I like to see them platoon with Kirk and Jansen there, but overall, I think this is a, a middle of the road lineup here in Major League Baseball. Look at the rotation; a lot of the same guys they had last year: Kevin Gaussman, uh, Jose Barrios, Chris Bassett, Kikuchi, and Manoa around at the starting five. That's going to be, again, uh, a rotation that's towards the top end, you know, pushing, I think, a top 10 rotation uh, in baseball, right around that 8 to 10 group if you had to measure starting rotations across the league. Um, so it should be a pretty good unit, but not a, a unit that is elite. Uh, and the bullpen, it has been an up and down bullpen for the past several years for the Blue Jays, uh, a group that has immensely struggled at times, but it's a group that's also 
seen some really good heights and for stretches has looked really good. They just have not had a whole lot of consistency in the back end with the bullpen. I don't really see that changing again in 2024. So all that being said, my floor and ceiling for the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm going to say the floor, 79 wins if everything goes wrong. I say their ceiling. I had 85 but looking at it, I, I think a finish of, of 87 is more in the cards as, as an utmost ceiling. So I'm going to switch there, make a last-second pivot. 87 wins at the ceiling. For the Toronto Blue Jays, I think this is a group that, if everything goes right, they'll be on the fringe slash last team in of that wildcard conversation. I, I just don't love this group. I don't hate it. I don't love it. And I think that they're a good enough team to get and squeak into the playoffs. But I could also see them being the first or second team out of the race as well. I just think that's the kind of roster they have. They didn't make many improvements from last year. They're kind of just saying, you know, we had to, you know, mix and match a couple of guys here and there to fill in some of those holes. But they didn't fill the holes with any any elite players. And, you know, you're looking at the key key departures. They lost Jordan Hicks, a big part of that bullpen. Uh, Matt Chapman. Um, probably out the door. He has been heavily linked to the San Francisco Giants. I think uh, the Giants or Cubs are, are a likely landing spot for Matt Chapman. Um, you have Whit Merrifield, I think, set to leave. Hinjin Ryu, a, a nice middle-of-the-rotation starting piece at his peak uh, at this point of his career leaving. So you know, I think they have a lot more talent leaving the roster than they have joining the roster. And, and I think a bit of a fallout a fall off is, is in line. A group that finished with 89 wins last year. I realistically, I think I see them finishing around 83 or 84 this year and missing the playoffs uh, as the Toronto Blue Jays. If I had to give my exact win prediction, that's where I have them. But my floor at 79, my ceiling at 87. I don't see a huge fall off between the floor and the ceiling of this team for the Toronto Blue Jays. All right, let's talk about the second place team from last year, the Tampa Bay Rays, finished with 99 wins. Again, another team that in the offseason didn't do a whole lot. They didn't, you know, lose a lot of pieces, but they didn't gain a lot of pieces either. And as you would expect for the Rays, one of those most, you know, one of the smaller market teams, uh, and they do not spend a whole lot in payroll. So that's what you've come to expect from this Rays group. Uh, What they did, they got Jose Caballero, a middle infielder in a trade from the Mariners. Got Johnny DeLuca, an outfielder, and Ryan Pepio in a trade with the Dodgers that sent Tyler Glasnow out to the West Coast to go play for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And they made a nice signing in the bullpen. I like this move. Phil Mateson coming over from the Astros to fill in in the Rays bullpen. I think this is a really good move. The Rays have a nice way of just being able to find bullpen pieces and use them and get the most out of them. You know, like we saw with Robert Stevenson last year, he struggled with the Pirates, came to Tampa Bay, had a really nice rest of his season, and earned him a nice three-year contract going out to sign with the Angels. The Rays just have a way about them of getting the most out of their relievers. I think this is a great move for both Phil Maton and the club for the Tampa Bay Rays. I think that's their best move that they made this offseason. You look at their key departures. I mentioned Robert Stevenson uh, did a nice job pitching for them in the middle of that bullpen last year. Earned his pitching with a raise and a nice three-year contract with the Los Angeles Angels. Lost Jake Diekman to the New York Mets uh, and catcher Francisco Mejia joining Stevenson out with the Angels. So, now we're taking a look at this Tampa Bay lineup. I'm going to give you my thoughts on each one of their positional groups. Uh, again, largely the same lineup as last year, but this is a group that was productive. Yandy Diaz, really good at the top of this order. Brandon Lau, Randy Rosarena. The list goes on and on, and they're infusing some young talent there. Uh, I can't wait 
to see, you know, Johnny DeLuca is an interesting outfield piece for them with some depth. But you look at some big-time minor leaguers for them. You got, um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Junior Caminero, there we go. It just blanked me, but I found it. Uh, he could be a nice piece um, coming up through the system this year. Curtis and Mead as well could be a guy who could, could have an impact for Tampa Bay. So they certainly have some young positional bats coming up through the system. That can be an impact at some points here in the 2024 season. But that is going to take us to our first break when we come back further discussing my thoughts on the Tampa Bay Rays heading into the 2024 season and giving you my floor and ceiling for Tampa Bay when we come back here on hour number two of Heavy Hitters on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. And welcome back to Heavy Hitters here on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR Kutztown. Hour number two. I'm Jack. I'm along with you here on this Monday night. Talking all things MLB, it is officially baseball season with the Super Bowl closing the door on the NFL season. Pitchers and catchers reporting today. So excited for baseball season to officially be underway. But I was talking about all things Tampa Bay Rays, discussing my thoughts on the floor and ceilings of all teams in the AL East. Here, made our way through Boston, uh, the Yankees, and the Blue Jays thus far, but going all in on the Tampa Bay Rays. Talking about how I like this lineup, returning a lot of the same key pieces they had last year uh, that were so impactful and infusing some young talent into this group as well. With Junior Commonera, I believe, going to be making an impact at some point this year for the Rays. And Curtis Mead could possibly doing so, could be possibly doing so as well. Let's talk about this starting rotation. Zach Eflin was nice for the Rays last year. It was a good pickup. Uh, Aaron Savali uh, came down to Tampa. Uh, they just have a way with pitchers. Um, Ryan Pepio, a nice young addition alongside a younger guy in Taj Bradley. Um, so we'll see what they can get out of this group. Uh, not the best starting rotation the Rays have rolled out uh, come opening day over the past couple of years, but it is not a unit that's, I think, going to be a group that you say, uh-oh, this is a group that, this is a positional group that can hold them back in 2024 as well. And as always, this bullpen, it feels like no matter who they have out here, the Rays just find a way to have a bullpen that performs towards the top end of the game. Uh, and, and I don't see that changing in 2024. I think the Rays will be just fine with their bullpen situation. So now, my time to give you the floor and ceiling of the Tampa Bay Rays. I think the floor, 85 wins for this group. I don't see them finishing below 500, even if all things go wrong. I think the ceiling is at 95 wins. I think... Oh, I don't know. That feels a little low now that I'm thinking about it. I, I kind of just put down a number. I'm like, yeah, 95 could work. But they got 99 last year, and a whole heck of a lot did not change. I'm going to make that 98. 98 wins. I think upping it by three feels very appropriate for this group. A group who's been accustomed to and having consistent success, especially in the AL East. I know this division's got tougher, but the Rays just find ways to win ball games. If everything goes right, I don't think 98's an outlandish number at all for this group. They didn't lose a whole heck of a lot. They didn't gain um, monumental talent, but I think some younger guys coming in are going to be making an impact like Orion Pepio in this rotation and Phil Maton out in that bullpen. So, that's what I got for the Tampa Bay Rays. 85 wins as the floor, 98 wins as the ceiling. Let's move on to the final team in the American League East, the divisional winners from a year ago, the Baltimore Orioles. Some of their key moves in the offseason. Again, a surprisingly quiet team. 
But I think with new ownership going forward, they're going to be incl- have a um, inclination and a you know more of a motive to spend a lot more money on the club. Um, so they claimed outfielder Sam Hilliard off waivers from the Atlanta Braves. Of course, made the big splash trade by picking up Corbin Burns from the Milwaukee Brewers, sending D.L. Hall and Joey Ortiz back to the Brew Crew in that deal. They get their certified ace, at least for the 2024 season, in Corbin Burns. Love that move for Baltimore. Talked about it at length in past shows. If you want to hear me discuss Corbin Burns, uh, you can check those past episodes of Heavy Hitters out on our Spotify by searching Kutztown University Radio. Uh, And they also picked up the relief pitcher from the Phillies, Craig Kimbrell, uh, in free agency. The Orioles, talk about bullpen whispers. Last couple years have had some big-time relievers. Felix Bautista, uh, unfortunately, he got hurt towards the end of last year. Uh, in late July, and then you had Yanir Cano seemingly come out of nowhere to have a dominant season with his masterful changeup. Um, a guy who, Yanir Cano is a textbook definition of new age pitchers finding their way and to be successful in the big leagues. A guy who immensely, immensely struggled uh, throughout a couple of his stops, spent some time with the Twins, but comes to Baltimore lowers that arm release angle uh, and changes a couple of things up, and he gets a nasty changeup. He is a big-time reliever for these Orioles. Um, But they have had a way with relievers. Can they find a way to get the most out of Craig Kimbrell in the late stages of his fantastic MLB career? Some key departures. uh, Lost a couple of starters. Kyle Gibson going to St. Louis. Jack Flaherty departs for Detroit. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying key for all of these guys, but these are the guys who they lost. They also lost Adam Hicks and or Aaron Hicks and Adam Frazier on a couple of relievers in Shintaro Fujinami and Jorge Lopez, both going to Flushing to play for the New York Mets. So let's talk about Baltimore. Let's talk about this young star-studded lineup. Talk about this incredible rotation. Overall, a fantastic team. The Orioles are getting ready to field in 2024. We all know Gunnar Henderson, the AL Rookie of the Year from a year ago. Adley Rutschman, the young star catcher. Anthony Santander, a nice veteran presence in this lineup. Ryan O'Hearn, an underrated piece of this Orioles team from a year ago. Had some big-time moments um, and and really mashed uh, when when looking at his production against uh, right-handed pitching. Um, You have Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, a lot of the the same outfield from last year. uh, But you're going to be bringing... Jordan Westberg back in the middle of that infield, and potentially, I think, Jackson Holiday will crack the big league roster as their starting shortstop. Um, Jackson Holiday, the former number one overall pick in the draft, he is so good. You see what he did in the minor leagues last year was truly phenomenal, flew his way up the system, uh, and I think he'll be able to get up and start for the Orioles as their shortstop on opening day. You still have Gene McCann as the backup catcher, uh, and, and some familiar bench pieces in Jorge Mateo, Ramona Rios, and they added Sam Hilliard to that bunch overall. A lot of the same players as last year that got them to that 100-plus win season. I think more could be in store for the Orioles in terms of lineup success in 2024. Look at that starting rotation. I mentioned Corbin Burns, but he joins one of the better pitchers in the, all of the AL last year in Kyle Bradish. Grayson Rodriguez, a dazzling young arm in this rotation. You bring John Means back towards the tail end of last season, um, and he showed some good things in his starts. Uh, pitched to a sub-3 ERA in his four start to the end of last season. And Dean Kramer, who was a guy who was up and down last year, but not a bad pitcher at all 
Uh, he's just a little bit inconsistent, but he's a guy you can feel pretty good about giving the ball to every five days for these Orioles. I mentioned Craig Kimbrell coming along to this bullpen. You have Yanir Cano, and you have some impressive middle-of-the-road guys like CNL Perez, uh, Dylan Tate, and Tyler Wells in this Oriole bullpen. Uh, unfortunately, no Felix Bautista because he had Tommy John surgery. So, again, trying to fill in for his loss through a full season. Going to be a little bit difficult, but I don't see the Orioles having a lot of trouble. I think this group is going to be in line to win this division yet again. So with all that being said, giving you my floor and ceiling for the Baltimore Orioles, I have the floor of this team at 87 wins. I am that high on this group. I think even if all things go wrong, the young lineup isn't as good as they were last year. The, the starting rotation takes a bit of a step back, a minor step back with how many good you know pitchers they have there. Uh, and the bullpen isn't as you know surefire as it was a year ago because of the full season absence uh, of Felix Bautista on the back end. Even if all that does come to fruition, I still seeing them getting to 87 wins and very well could get in the playoffs. I think the ceiling right around what they had last year. I think it's very replicable that they can get to over 100 wins. I have the ceiling at 102 for the Baltimore Orioles. One win higher than they were this past year. So, there are my thoughts on the American League East. Giving you my floor and ceilings for each team. Red Sox, 73 wins is the floor. 81 is the ceiling. Yankees, 83 wins is the floor. 96 is their ceiling. Toronto, 79 wins at the floor. 87 for their ceiling. Not a lot of difference there for me. The Rays, 85 wins is the floor. 98 for the ceiling. And the Orioles, 87 win floor. And a 102 win ceiling for Baltimore. On Friday, we'll give our thoughts on the AL Central. Um... Interesting division there. That one, you talk about wide open division. That is what the American League Central is. But that'll do it for our baseball discussion here as we have just a little bit less than a half hour to go on this edition of Heavy Hitters. Talked all things Super Bowl 58. A long MOB discussion with pitchers and catchers reporting today and in a in-depth AL East discussion on each team, what I think they can achieve in 2024. Uh, but now let's talk about college basketball. Season's in full swing. We are winding down here in the regular season. Um, we are getting ever so closer to March Madness. Almost a month away. The bracket will be revealed a month from Saturday, if you can believe it. We are already that close to the madness beginning. Um, I'm going to start by discussing some of the weekend's top games in the Big 12. Kansas and Baylor had a heavyweight matchup uh, at Allen Fieldhouse. Kansas outlasted Baylor at home, 64-61, and that was without one of their top players in Kevin McCullough Jr. They're going to be without him again tonight uh, as they travel to Texas Tech on the road. A nice opportunity for the Red Raiders to pick up a conference uh, win at home. They're the number 23 in the country. Uh, the Red Raiders, they sit at 5th in the Big 12 at 6-4. and four. If they go to 7-4 and four tonight, if they can get a win, they would uh, bump right up to tie Kansas for third in the Big 12 at 7-4. and four. And with such a deep and talented conference, even the teams at the bottom, like a Cincinnati and, and UCF at 4-6, and six, you know they give teams a run for their money each and every night in this league, and that's what makes the Big 12 so interesting to monitor. You know, you can think in one school of thought that well, they're playing such tough competition in conference all season long. It's going to make them, you know, so weak going into March. But you can also, you know, argue, you know, 
Conversely, the opposite, that playing such a hard strength of schedule in your conference better prepares you for the chaos that is March Madness. And with how talented all these teams are, with Houston, Iowa State, Kansas, and Baylor all being in the top 12 in the country, yes, that is four of the top 12 teams in the country all residing in one conference, um, it, it absolutely will prepare will prepare you for the NCAA tournament. So Kansas and Baylor duke it out over the weekend with the Jayhawks picking up a three-point win. Moving on to the SEC, Texas A&M picks up a huge win at home over number 6-ranked Tennessee, 85-69. Texas A&M, a group that really has underperformed this season, a team that so many had high aspirations for you know, after their solid season last year going into the NCAA tournament as a, a seven seed before losing to Penn State in the first round. Uh, but they were a group that was returning a lot of that production, but they have not been able uh, to, to piece it together as much as everyone had expected them to. But that's also large in part because some of the teams in the SEC that people were lower on have drastically overperformed, like a South Carolina, um, like an Ole Miss. Georgia's even had a, a surprisingly competitive season. Yes, they're 4-7 and seven in conference play, but they have been a lot more competitive than people came to expect at the start of the season. So looking at Texas A&M, they are 6-4. and four. In conference play, 15-8. and eight. They've rattled off three in a row, so the Aggies have put themselves in a better spot here uh, in early to mid-February and, and get a huge resume booster with that win at home against the number 6-ranked Tennessee Volunteers. Talk about a team that is scuffling, but we'll talk about them in a minute. I want to take a deep dive into Wisconsin Badgers as they've dropped four in a row. But for Florida, they down number 12-ranked Auburn, 81-65 in Gainesville. The, the Gators needed that win in a quad one opportunity. Uh, depending on where you look at bracketology as it currently stands, the Gators would be in in some, a bubble team in others. But Florida with a huge, huge win at home, boosting their resume by demolishing uh, the 12th-ranked Auburn Tigers uh, down in Gainesville. Sticking in the SEC, Gonzaga travels to Rupp Arena and gets a big-time win in a quad one game against the Kentucky Wildcats. Uh, Kentucky continues to struggle, uh, especially defensively, in Rupp Arena over the past couple of weeks. Uh, has led to some home woes. Kentucky has dropped to 6-4 and four, uh, in SEC play. Obviously, this is a non-conference matchup, uh, but they have lost... Two of their first three in the month in February, and you go back to to January, they've lost three of their last four, losing an overtime game, 94-91 at home, to Florida. So Kentucky hitting kind of a skid here uh, in early to mid-February. They have a chance to piece it together. Ole Miss coming to town tomorrow night, uh, and then they travel to play Auburn. That should be a fun matchup between two teams who can score the ball uh, at will with the combination of fantastic guards going to be playing in that game, uh, and Kentucky's going to get a chance to host Alabama a little bit later in the regular season. So some opportunities to pick up some more big wins for Kentucky. They are by no means out of the race. They are still firmly in, uh, I think, the the field of 68 as it currently stands. But they've got to find a way to start picking it up. You never want to be trending down heading into the NCAA tournament. Uh, you look at the Mountain West, a possibility to become a six-bid league as a non-Power Six conference, which is truly incredible. Uh, the Mountain West... How many talented teams are out there this year? They were a talented conference last year, but they've only gotten better this year. You'll, you'll look at the group of teams that is out there uh, at the current moment, and a lot of them have a chance to do some potential damage 
uh, come tournament time. You look at, at last year's national runner-up in, in San Diego State. They're solid again. You have Utah State leading the way in that conference at 8-3. and three. Colorado State at 7-4. and four. Boise State at 7-4. and four. Uh, New Mexico, the Lobos, with their trio of guards, Jamal Mashburn, Jalen House. Um, I always forget the third one. Um, and Donovan Dent, sophomore breakout player. Dent has been huge this year for the Lobos. And, and even Nevada's picked up some big wins. Uh, they, they've won three in a row. They went to Utah State, got a 13-point win, and then beat San Diego State in overtime at home. They host New Mexico tomorrow night, a chance for Nevada to pick up another big win in conference. And, and UNLV, who everyone kind of said, eh, they're out of it, they've rattled off four in a row taking down some of the bottom feeders like San Jose State and Fresno State, but two impressive wins, um, or a, a nice win at home against Wyoming, and an impressive win going to the pit and taking down New Mexico on Saturday. Uh, the Running Rebels are a group who could be a potential bid stealer here in the Mountain West. They host the Mountain West tournament on their home floor. That could be a huge advantage for UNLV come a highly anticipated Mountain West tournament uh, which should be some much, much watched, uh, must watch TV. Pardon me. Uh, if you have not been able to watch a whole lot of Mountain West basketball this year, I highly, highly suggest you start tuning in right now. One of the most fun leagues uh, across the country to keep an eye on. Uh, high level games, night in and night out in that conference. In that conference tournament, should breed a whole lot of chaos with how many high quality teams play. In the Mountain West. All right, moving on, talking about Wisconsin, circling back to the Big Ten. They have dropped four in a row. Not a good stretch uh, for Greg Gard and the Wisconsin Badgers. They're going to be hosting Ohio State at the Kohl Center tomorrow night, uh, an opportunity to get right for the Badgers. Over the last four games, their opponents have averaged 76 uh, points per game. Not good defense for the Badgers. Despite their losing streak of four, though, they still sit third in the Big Ten at eight and five, uh, but it has given Purdue a sizable two-and-a-half game lead over Illinois, three games up over Wisconsin. Certainly seems like Purdue's going to be going into the Big Ten tournament as the one seed uh, if everything goes as expected. Boilermakers winners of eight in a row, but Wisconsin, they've lost four in a row and to not great teams. You know, three of the four, yes, Nebraska, a, a solid opponent, 80-72 to 72 loss on the road in overtime. Mentioned how they they met up with Purdue at home, lost by six. But the last two, at Michigan, loss, and at Rutgers, loss. Those are two of the bottom four teams in the Big Ten that they're unable to pick up wins against. Yes, they're on the road, so it makes it a little bit you know more understandable why they were unable to come away with wins. But you know, you're you're you went from being the sixth ranked team in the country, falling to twentieth in a matter of a week and a half. So. Wisconsin in a big slide right now, losing to some lower-tier Big Ten opponents. Um, the Badgers got to find a way to get this thing figured out uh, because we are getting closer and closer to the NCAA tournament, and time is running out to get yourself back playing your best game uh, before Conference Championship Week and the NCAA tournament begin. But that's going to take us to our final break of today's show. When we come back, more college basketball discussion on the way, reviewing a couple of brackets um, as they currently stand with some bracketology uh, and going to be sc- discussing some of the conference standing leaders uh, amongst the mid-major level and give you some teams uh, currently that you should be keeping your eye on to be a possible Cinderella or a, a fun team to watch come the NCAA tournament. So, so much more college basketball talk coming your way when we come back here on Heavy Hitters. 
And welcome back to Heavy Hitters here on the radio voice of Kutztown University, KOR Kutztown. I'm your host, Jack Heim. Good to be back, man. It is good to be talking sports with you once again for these two hours. Wrapping up today's show, we're talking some more college basketball here in the swing of the regular season. Each game means so much for each one of these teams. An opportunity to build your resume, an opportunity for a ugly loss to get you know, put up on your resume, uh, and each one of these games could be, you know, indicative of whether you are in or out uh, at the end of the day if you are on the bubble. Uh, for these teams near the one line, yes, it matters to continue to win, but you're going to be in the tournament at the end of the day. Um, so teams like Purdue, UConn, um, you know, North Carolina, teams like that, uh, Houston as well, you can add to that list. Um, they are firmly set to be in the field uh, and right up near the top of it, near that one and two seed line. Uh, so excited to watch immensely talented teams like that take the uh, center stage come March Madness. But as well, those sleepers and underdogs are important to look at as well. So I'm going to take you through a uh, projected bracket as it currently stands um, and, and highlight some of the most interesting things that I see. Uh, this is from Ryan Hammer on Twitter. Um, incredible. He he is some really good college basketball content. So if you're looking, um, you know, to to keep up with more analytical stuff and things of that nature, um, he is a good guy uh, to to follow uh, at this stage of the year. If you're getting in heavily into March Madness, all right, uh, Purdue. Uh, top overall seed, I think that is most certainly fair with what they've done. I think Purdue and UConn are right there at 1A and 1B uh, as the top two teams in the country. Uh, Houston and Arizona jump. Uh, Houston stays on the one seed line. Arizona jumps up with how they've been playing as of late. Uh, I think that is a, a great assessment. The Wildcats, uh, after a little bit of a slump, uh, have reestablished themselves, uh, getting back to that dominant form of play that we saw from them a little early on in the season. North Carolina is still playing well, but they've been a little bit up and down, dropping one to Clemson, squeaking by Miami. Hasn't looked, haven't looked as convincing as of late, so they dropped down to that two line. Uh, Tennessee, Kansas, uh, as Marquette continue to stay there as well. You have Iowa State, an interesting team on the three line. They are more offensively gifted this year. I think that makes them a little bit more dangerous as the Cyclones. Um, and other notable teams uh, on the three-line, Auburn as well, uh, with how up and down they are. They Sometimes they look incredible like they did against Alabama, but there's games that they have like they played against Florida. Uh, they, they are really talented and have had a really good season, but you don't really know what to get fully out of Auburn. Uh, most intriguing teams on the four-line. South Carolina continues to be a fast, fast riser. Um Towards the top of the SEC, what Lamont Paris has done in year two with the Gamecocks coming over from Chattanooga, the Mocs, where he coached a couple of teams at the NCAA tournament in the SOCON. Um, what he's done with South Carolina has truly, truly been remarkable. They're up to 11th in the AP poll. They are tied for first in the SEC at 9-2, and two, right alongside Alabama. South Carolina winners of seven in a row and 21-3 and three overall on the year. Um you know, a team that was projected to finish last in the SEC is sitting tied for first uh, in February. As John Rothstein says, anarchy, nope, just college basketball. Uh, and this is what makes this sport so great, you know, where the unexpected becomes expected. And teams like South Carolina, who nobody had expectations for, are right up near 
Uh, the top of the sport in the AP rankings are in on, also in a position as it currently stands to be a, you know, on that top four seed line, which is truly, truly incredible. Um, Dayton as well, out of the 8-10. The Flyers have had a remarkable season. They're led by Deron Holmes. They have a really efficient starting five. Um, what that Dayton group has, they are very, very good. One of the better mid-major teams in the country. Um, look at the five line right now. San Diego State, an intriguing spot. Uh, you know That's where they were last year when they went on that run um, as a five seed. Uh, you have Wisconsin here with the struggles I highlighted for them. Uh, and Creighton is always an intriguing group to watch with that, you know, group of Ryan Kalkbrenner, Baylor Shireman, uh, and, and Trey Alexander. They're always a group that you should keep your eyes on as well. Uh, sixth line, Indiana State, the Sycamores. They are a team that you should be familiarizing yourself with. Peronto. They have one of the best and most efficient offenses in the country. Robbie Avila is a name to watch. He can be a guy who can take over in March Madness. Um, what they do and how dominant they've been in the MVC, one of the better mid-major conferences. The Sycamores of Indiana State are a team you should be keeping your eyes on uh, as a team that can go on a run and be a polarizing team to watch in March Madness. Uh, so I am going to be saying keeping your eyes, keep your eyes peeled and keep your eyes open when it comes to looking at the Sycamores. Uh, they host Illinois State on Tuesday night. They set a 22-3 overall in the season. They have rattled off now nine wins in a row. They beat Drake, the second-place team in this conference. The Bulldogs are another solid team in the MVC. Uh, so Indiana State has also cracked the AP poll rankings. They're 23rd in the country. They're getting the respect they deserve. A serious chance that Indiana State can run the table in the regular season, win out, and put themselves as only a three-loss team heading into Arch Madness, the, the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament. Uh, so the Sycamores, a team you should be keeping your eyes on. All right, looking at the seven line, Clemson has risen up the ranks with that big road win in Chapel Hill at North Carolina. P.J. Hall, one of the best players in the country. Um, Clemson is a team who, led by Brown, uh, Brad Brownell as their head coach, uh, they are an intriguing group to keep an eye on. Also have Syracuse guard transfer uh, Joseph Girard, who can make it rain from downtown. Florida, seven line as well. I mean, this seven-seed line right now has a lot of intriguing teams for a variety of different reasons. Virginia, who has been on an absolute roll in ACC play, they're a team to keep your eyes on out as uh, keep your eyes on as well to see how uh, you know far up the seed lines they can rise as the regular season continues to roll on. Uh, and Kentucky with their dynamic freshmen. I know I talk about every team on the seven seed line, but I think they're all worthy of it because of how intriguing they are for a variety of different reasons. All that young talent uh, in Kentucky. They're a group that you uh, should not take lightly. Uh, yes, they've had their defensive woes, but they are still polarizing offensively. Uh, looking at the 8 and 9 seed, I will pair these together. Grand Canyon um, out of the WAC of the Western Athletic Conference. They are a team you should be watching as well. They were an impressive mid-major last year. Made the NCAA tournament, fell short against Gonzaga, but a very talented group led by head coach Brad Drew, or Bryce Drew, excuse me. Um, the Antelopes. Uh, the Lopes, excuse me, are a fun group to keep an eye on. Uh, Texas Tech as well. Uh, Grant McCaslin, year one with the Red Raiders. Uh, their coach coming over from North Texas. They are stingy defensively. They are not a team that I would love to draw in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Uh, Michigan State. Tom Izzo just finds a way, no matter how good or bad it looks, to have Michigan State um, in the NCAA tournament field. Picked up a nice home win against Illinois over the weekend. Um, Izzo and the Spartans. Uh, I would say are in 
I wouldn't say firmly in, but they find themselves in a pretty decent spot uh, as it currently stands. On to the 10 line, Ole Miss, another team that nobody had a lot of expectations for coming into the year. Uh, but Chris Beard in year one with the Rebels has really outperformed what many thought Ole Miss could do. Uh, and Butler out of the Big East, they're, they're a uh, surprising and stingy team uh, to play against as well. To the 11 line, uh, Gonzaga has moved into an at-large bid position with that win at Kentucky. Interesting to watch. The WCC would have two auto uh, two bids with St. Mary's and Gonzaga. Uh, New Mexico out of the Mountain West with the trio of guards I mentioned. They are going to be a tough matchup for a team just considering the pace they play with. If you have a group that likes to get out and run, that's not the way you're going to beat New Mexico. So depending on their matchup, they could be an intriguing team to watch as well. Still plenty of time till the bracket comes out, but just giving you some teams that you should be familiar with and keeping your eyes on in each seed line. McNeese State out of the Southland uh, at the 12. Um, auto bid there. They are a fun team to watch as well are the Cowboys. Um, you have Nevada out of the Mountain West. Any one of those Mountain West teams can make some noise in the tournament with how high quality they are. Um, Wake Forest, interesting opportunity here tonight. They play Duke on the road um, at Cameron Indoor, a chance for Steve Forbes' Demon Deacons to pick up a huge quad one win uh, on their resume. Uh, Hunter Salas leads the way for them. Um, the Demon Deacons are not to be taken lightly. If they can get a win tonight at Duke, that would go a long way uh, to boosting their resume and kind of get them out of the of the last four in and closer to the uh, last four by uh, spot for the Demon Deacons. Big opportunity for them tonight. Um, you have the 13 seed line, Appalachian State out of the Sun Belt. They're a team to keep an eye on, and Yale out of the Ivy League. Three quality teams in the Ivy League this year, Princeton, Cornell, and Yale, all high-quality teams. Not often you see that uh, in a mid-major conference like the Ivy League, but that is the case this year. Right now, Yale getting the auto bid with the win over Cornell over the weekend at home. The Bulldogs uh, would be an interesting 13 seed to watch in the tournament, uh, as would be UNCW out of the Colonial or excuse me, out of the Coastal, changing the conference name this year. Uh, UNCW, the Seahawks, didn't make it last year, lost to Charleston in the uh, conference title game, or in the conference tournament title game. Uh, but right now, getting the auto bid, they would be an interesting team to look out for as well. Um, clumping the 14, 15, 16 lines together, I don't think we're going to be seeing a 16-1 upset this year. I just think it's not going to be great matchups. The only one that could get shocked right now, if the, if the season ended today and the bracket got released, Maybe could be Arizona if you had a scrappy physical team that, that could slow them down and get them out of sorts offensively. But I don't see Purdue's team this year, UConn or Houston, getting stunned by a 16 seed. Um, and really Arizona as well. It would take a lot to take down the Wildcats. Um, 15 line. Quinnipiac's interesting out of the MAAC. They've been on a roll lately. Um, they had a double-digit game win streak going but lost to Mount St. Mary's over the weekend. Uh, and on the 14 line, high point out of the uh, Big South, they've had a pretty good year uh, as well. So those are your teams to kind of note on each individual seed line. Um, but now it's time to talk about you know standings and where things could could shake out uh, if you're looking at you know teams to watch in terms of bid stealers in in each conference. So. Let's look at the major ones here. Uh, the AAC is an interesting conference. Florida Atlantic is there, but South Florida, 10-1 and in conference play. Charlotte is 9-2, and a fun matchup between the Bulls and the 49ers. Um, that transpired last week. 
Uh, the AAC is a fun conference. Even Memphis, there's a chance that this could be a two, maybe a three bid league. Um, you know, if Memphis continues to get its act together, they've won three in a row. Um, and if somebody not named Florida Atlantic gets the auto bid in this league, there's a chance it could be a two, possibly a three bid league. That is something to watch out for in the American Athletic Conference. The A-10 could be a two-bid league if somebody outside of Dayton wins the conference tournament. The Flyers are pretty much a lock to make the NCAA tournament either way, whether that's an auto-bid winning the A-10 tournament or if they lose you know, late on, later on in the tournament, whether that be the semifinals or finals, I think they'd be a lock for an at-large bid and somebody like Richmond or even Loyola Chicago could get in. How about the Ramblers? They've had a really good year, 9-2 and two in conference play. They've won four in a row. They are a potential bid stealer to keep your eyes out for as well. Uh, right along VCU as well. They're a game and a half behind at 8-3 and three in the A-10 play are VCU. Um, not going to go through the power conferences. A lot of that is, I wouldn't say ironed out, but I don't know if there's a crazy amount of bid stealers. Big East, I don't see that happening that way. Um, the Big 12, somebody I think outside of Houston uh, or Kansas could win it, but I don't think it's anyone at the bottom like Oklahoma State. Uh, any of those bottom four, like Cincinnati, UCF, West Virginia, or Oklahoma State. So I don't think we have to worry too much about that. Um, Drake, the Bulldogs in the NBC, I think they could be a potential bid stealer um, there. Uh, but it would probably be a two if that happens. I think Indiana State's got a good enough resume to get in uh, as an at-large bid if Drake goes on to win uh, the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament. So that's something to look out for. Um, other conferences where that could be a possibility in terms of mid-major level. Um, I, I said UNLV already for the Mountain West, um, but I think that's really the only other mid-major league where that could be the possibility where a team is good enough to have a two-bid league um, if, if the you know favorite does not end up winning. Uh, but before we get back and wrap it up, we have a message from the KOR Notebook. KOR has got a lot of history behind it from its inception as WKSC and WRKU to the reboot in 2005 to now. KOR history has got you covered, and if that interested you, go ahead and give KOR history a follow over on Instagram at KUR history and uncover the lore behind this long-running station. This message of community interest brought to you by the radio voice of Kutztown University, KUR. All right, that is going to do it for today's show. Super Bowl 58, great discussion there. A lot to talk about with baseball, as always, with spring training games happening a week from Saturday. And college basketball in full swing. So excited for the regular season to continue going on. Some big games tonight. Wake Forest and Duke, Kansas, Texas Tech. Uh, should be a couple of good ones to keep your eye out on Um tonight in college basketball and West Virginia going to TCU a chance for the Mountaineers to get a nice uh, road win down in Fort Worth well that's going to do it for heavy hitters today we will be back on Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. right here on the radio voice of Kutztown University KOR Kutztown thank you for tuning in if you missed any part of this show and you want to go back and listen you can do that on Spotify by searching Kutztown University Radio uh, and all of the past heavy hitters will show up there until Friday have a good week uh, and we'll be back then from 2 to 4